Hello everyone and welcome to the Desolation Sounds podcast. My name is Stephen Hook and this is a podcast celebrating everything to do within the world of alternative music. Be that rock, punk, metal or extreme metal. Coming up, yeah, there. Let's go. Coming up on this week's show, beautifully well-spoken English, as well as news and new music from the past seven days, including Napalm Death, The Ghost Inside and Alexis on Fire. So a bit of a week of comebacks. Uh, album reviews from Sayor, Puppy and a split between two of New Zealand's uh, young post-hardcore startlets. That sounded kind of weird, less weird in my head. Um, so it's a split by Ray and Chasing South. And I'll be answering the big question that I sent out to everyone of the past week. And that is, who should be the next artist, the next group to get the Bohemian Rhapsody treatment in time for Oscar season? Because baiting and mild cultural relevance. But anyway, first of all, the news. We'll start with Napalm Death. And vocalist Barney Greenway has said in an interview with Metal Underground that he, like, he's begun work on vocals for the new ND album. He says, most of the music is done. I've been working on vocals. I'm more or less halfway through, so there's a bit more to do. But of course, then we've got to look at things like artwork and all the various things. The thing with Napalm, after this many albums, you can't just be something that you throw out there before going on to say it's got to be like top of the line stuff and it just can't be randomly throwing things out there for filler, which is at this point, fair enough. It's going to be the follow-up to 2015's Apex Predator Easy Meat, which oddly enough... I kind of missed. I got. I remember listening to it one um, a couple of times and thinking uh, it was really good, but I never stuck with it. I think there was literally like a year before I probably started sitting down with albums and listening to them from start to finish. Whereas before I was just getting, you know, the odd single or just getting samples of albums, thinking, "Oh, that's really good," and then for whatever reason, just never deciding to go back because I was weird. Um. Well, notice that uh, the fact he's working on vocals and says the music's done makes me think, especially this early in the year, makes me think of a 2019 release. Otherwise, depending on how everything else goes, like he says, artwork, name, uh, labels, all that, McGubbins, I'd say either fall this year or if there's any delay, I'd say early part of 2020. But yeah, that'll be. I've just had a look on one of the other Napalm Death albums. It's going to be album 16 for them. It's going to be... It's, they're an institution at this point. We'll get them on the pound coin. It'll be right. It'll be all right. Uh, next up, we've got a, a documentary being made about Chris Cornell. Uh, the legendary voice of Soundgarden, Temple of the Dog, Audio Slave. It's in the works. And Variety, which I've heard of. I can't... I don't specifically know what they do. I think they just do celebrity news over in the States. They're claiming that Brad Pitt, he of many, many films, that's what you're getting, uh, apparently he's having an hand in having it all come to fruition. The film will follow the life and career of Cornell and is being produced by his widow, Vicky, uh, Brad Pitt, the aforementioned actor, and Film 45, a non-scripted entertainment production company. You can tell I got that offline. They're based in California and they're run by... Peter Berg, who has worked on films like Hancock, Battleship, Deepwater Horizon, and Mile 22. I'm definitely intrigued because Chris Cornell was someone who I was always very aware of. It hit me like a train when I realised that the guy who sung... So the very first time I was overtly aware of Chris Cornell was when he did the James Bond theme song a few years back. Um, 
so when I realised that he was also the lead singer of Soundgarden and then subsequently Audio Slave, my little puny Brian just went and then it all came like a train again when I realised that well when I heard the news that he'd passed away very very sad, very very tragic but the fact is that this documentary has been made it's going to make me hopeful that for one, I can know more about him in the same way uh, listening to other people and listening to uh, Bloody Kisses last week made me more aware of how influential Peter Steele was. I'm hoping the documentary will make me more aware of how, even more, because I've heard a lot more since his passing, even more about how important Chris Cornell was and hopefully the documentary will open him up to a new field of fans casual music and film fans you know what i mean just just sort of like get his name more out there more known so very much look forward to that no release date no idea of how far or lack thereof in production it is but yeah brad pitt is helping to make all that together and i'm, I'm very excited excuse me um up next alter bridge are apparently working on the follow-up to 2016's last hero an interview with Audio Inc. Radio, guitarist Peter Tremonti, who's currently out on tour with his solo band Tremonti, uh, he was questioned about the new AB record, um, to which he responded, yeah, I think the plan is to have it out this fall. I think October is kind of the target, so I'm probably getting a new AB album by end of the year. For whatever reason, similar to Napalm Death, Last Hero sort of just completely passed me by. I have no idea why. I really enjoyed... Um, AB3 was an album that I went back to really enjoy that Fortress I had on at the time and I really enjoyed that for that, the period I had it but yeah for whatever reason Last Hero just the lead single was Show Me A Leader and I have no recollection of that song whatsoever I think by that point I got more interested in Kennedy's work with Slash so I just sort of like focused on that and that was my fix of the man so yeah I suck and the, the feel-good bit of news for this week is the ghost inside... Oh, fucking hell. Punched fucking mic stand again. I need to get a new setup. Uh, the ghost inside have posted a teaser of a new music. There is a 60-second clip online montaging studio footage with um, what apparently is new music. It's going to be the first album since 2014's Dear Youth. But more importantly, it's going to be the first action musically they've had since 2015 when they were in a fatal bus crash that killed two uh, i'll be doing a reading about it i remember it happening at the time and it took about two days for everyone to realize just how serious this was because a lot of conflicting reports at the time saying the band were fine the band weren't fine the band were in critical condition some of the band were some of the band weren't um but they were uh, traveling somewhere in their tour bus and they hit head on with a semi-truck out in America. And both drivers of both vehicles died. Oh, sorry. The vehicle, both vehicles passed away. A lot of injuries throughout um, Ghost Aside and their entourage. Uh, vocalist Jonathan Vigil, guitarist Zach Johnson and drummer Andrew Tagazic. I really hope I... I no, I haven't pronounced that right. Tagazic. I apologise. Um... Those three gentlemen ended up in critical condition, uh, along with two others as part of their crew and entourage, with Takajic, I'm sorry, uh, ending up losing his leg following a 10-day coma. They were originally 
aiming for Warp Tour 2017. Unfortunately, injuries got in the way and they couldn't make it in time. Um, Warp Tour very kindly said that spot is always open for when they return. I don't know what it's doing now because I know Warp Tour isn't doing its like touring festival thing anymore. Warp Tour still in the air. I don't know if it's going to be a static world or whatever, but you know, cross that bridge. It was a very lovely um, idea that they presented. And yeah, there's been pictures from all, um, all members of the band saying they're back in the studio and they are like rehearsing again, that sort of thing. I know, I'm just going to call him Andrew. Drummer Andrew has been posting out updates saying his drumming is almost as good as it was before, which is really, really good to hear. And just before, I think yesterday, because I'm recording this a day late because I'm shit. Uh, yesterday, there was like news floating about and they've already got more a definite teaser on the way they're saying there's a video going around saying save the date and i believe it's the 13th of july um which no matter what it is if it's a new music video if it's a new album if it's new tour dates whatever it is it is incredible the fact they are at this point and yeah all the best luck to them they were for me they're a band i've never gone into for whatever reason i just thought they were very run-of-the-mill metalcore from this and what talking to other friends they are a bit more than that so they currently have four albums i might i think i'll put one in for um open mic one day i'll get you guys to re recommend me which one to listen to but yeah cross again cross the bridge when we get there but that's the news for this week uh there's new music out from a variety of different bands all of which i very much enjoy uh, first up, we're gonna have we're gonna look at of my and men. They've got a new song called "How to Survive." It is the first song since the album "Defy," which I really didn't like. Uh, it features all harsh vocals from Aaron Pauly, and it strikes me more as a restoring fourth style new metalcore kind of thing. I really, really like this song. I don't know if I said it before. It's called "How to Survive." Um, yeah, I adore. Restoring Force, I think that is a flawless album. Or flawless, flawless might be a bit generous. I just think it's a really, really great album. Cold World was a big step down for me. And then Defy, which is their first album without Austin Carlyle, because he had to leave the band through health issues. Just, it was so boring. Even, I think the lead single was Unbreakable, and it was just so boring bland and so plastic and more encompassing of the like the run-of-the-mill metalcore bands that of my cement did so well to distance themselves from over the years so it was a great shame but how to survive sounds incredible and yeah i'm hoping that the new album sounds a lot better and stat is more on par with restoring force or even the flood uh next up we got venom prism yes uh, Venom Prism have a new song called, I got this perfect yesterday, Uterine Industrialization, which sounds in itself metal as fuck. It is the lead single from the new album that's being announced called Samsara, and that is due the 15th of March 2019. Could have just said 15th of March. Holy shit, that's actually really close. I'm going to double check that because that seems way too close. But anyways, Samsara coming out is this uh, sequel to Animus, which was one of the... Oh, what's the word? Slow burner hits from 2016. Most of the people that I know that I follow music wise really popped for this album in the following year. So it missed out on a lot of albums of the year 
list for that exact reason. And the new sound, new song, sorry, sounds fucking blistering. It sounds so very good. Um, Animus was one of those ones where I kind of got wrapped up in hype quite a lot and sort of just like went with everyone else's opinions. Went to it briefly over the past, well, sporadically over the past few years and it is as good as they say. I want to go through it as a whole chunk of music at some point, so expect that on open mic at some point. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but yeah. New song, I read about it uh, a bit. It is all about, and this was an interview with lead singer Larissa Stupar, it is all about um, how other people are trying to command the uh, female body because that is what uh, Larissa is very much pro- uh, feminism and equality and all that sort of thing really great things she talks about but yeah the music itself is fucking insane if you like having your face literally clicked uh, clicked clicked off your body yes because that's brutal um highly recommend full-on death metally tings and last bit of new music that i've spotted amongst my circles is alexis on fire have returned with a new song called familiar drugs it is a new newest music since 2010 2010s fucking hell uh dog's blood ep which i remember getting at the time it was very meh but it was at an age where i was still considered alexis on fire a greatest hits kind of band it is a lot different from what i know of alexis on fire again they are a band that i need to go back to and really really explore better um but it's a lot more sludgy this time i think george's vocals on the song are really really good uh, makes me sad there's not as much wade purely because he's joined uh gallows and i have a huge hard on for gallows because that's who i am um dallas green's vocals strike me as kind of odd because they are a lot more i i compare them to ozzy osborne as if there's anyone else called ozzy um because it's more I don't want to say wailing because that has, I think that has negative connotations, but you know what I mean? That's sort of like more, I don't know how to describe it, just, it is more aussie it's more clean, it's more, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling to think of words. I can't think of the word. I use it all the time. Uplifting isn't right, but it's on par with that. Is it, it's just basically more OG. It suits more the sludge metal sort of sound. A lot of people go on about sludge metal comparison. I don't know what I'm talking about because you know. Um, but yeah, I'm fairly intrigued to see what comes next. Uh, I read a very well heard a very sad podca podcast that talked about how Dallas Green City and Color Project maybe hasn't done as well as he was hoping. I thought he was doing quite well with it because he gets talked about and thrown around the same sort of um, circles as a Passenger back in the day. And that other one who my housemate was really into, he did... Oh, Ben Howard, that's the one. Twat. Uh, yeah, he got put in those circles quite a lot back in the day, but I guess at the same time, Ben Howard and Passenger have pretty much fallen off the face of the earth, so... What can one do? But no. New of Mice and Men, New of Prison, New Alexis of Fire, they're all very, very good songs. Highly recommend you check them all out if you are so inclined. Righteous. I don't think I've ever said that. Moving on, so I'm going to do the big question first. And the question I post out to various social medias was who should get the Bohemian, the Bohemian Rhapsody treatment next? 
And what I mean by that is, obviously, I imagine by now a lot of people, if not all of them, all the people everywhere have watched Bohemian Rhapsody, the new um, biopic regarding Freddie Mercury and, to a lesser extent, Queen. And as a quick rundown for Bo Rap, it uh, goes through the origins of the band from when they were Smile into Queen, and it basically looks at the origins of Freddie. Uh, going from working in the airport to eventually joining this band. It looks at the early tours, the first few albums, really has an in-depth look at the recording of Night of the, o- Night of the Opera, which was their the first big hit that Queen had. Uh, Freddie's internal conflicts with uh, drugs and alcohol and just... No, first it goes through his internal conflicts, just whether or not he is a straight or gay or bi man. Then comes his issues with drugs and alcohol and then what eventually leads up to conflicts within the band the breakup uh freddy's redemption the reformation of the band and then the swan song of live aid it is not a hundred percent accurate to what actually happens because in real life he did not know he was hiv positive until after um live aid and i think the album after live aid actually which i can't remember which one came next um but yeah he didn't know anything about it before the concert happened so, but a lot of people have been angry about that. It is a film. Like, it might be a biopic, but it's a film. You need to have film-based drama in order to carry it along. But it was, it, all in all, I think it's a fantastic film. It's, a lot of people said it's a fantastic film. The fact it's up for multiple Oscars and various other awards that I'm not quite aware of. It's a big deal. So, what does a biopic need to do? Well, it needs to look at the band's origins, which... Rap did uh, their early prominence and their early, early career rise, the big album that sort of made them stars, some kind of drama, some kind of conflict within the band, within a band member, uh, the reconciliation between members of the band and the person in question or the act, event in question, I should say, and then although it didn't do too much in Bo Rap, kind of have like what happens next like the latest you've heard of the band in Borap it did have like a quick like two minute title card basically saying what happened with Freddy what happened with Queen that sort of thing um, but it was very very brief but I prefer a little bit more <sighs> depending on what the reconciliation is you might may or might not need that latest buzz um, and I know Anvil had something similar Kind of more of an- the Anvil film, from what I'm aware, because I've never had a chance to watch it. It struck me more as a case of what they were, what they are now, and what they're trying to do now. So they basically, whereas Queen, I feel like I want to sneeze. Whereas um, Borap sort of focus on the early and midpoint of Queen and sort of gloss over the end the Anvil film sort of glossed over the start and middle. Oh, there it is. Excuse me. The Anvil film sort of glossed over the middle, the beginning, sorry. Mild focus in the middle, and then sort of the bulk of the film was what's happening now and what they want to do in the future. Yeah, that was difficult when you're trying to sustain a sneeze. So, before I go into the actual people I picked. There were a lot of names that like sort of popped into me, like the OG big metal names. 
which to a point work, but there's always something that's sort of like missing from that. So one of the first ones that came to me was Iron Maiden. And you can do it from various stages in the band. You can do the transition from vocalist to vocalist. So maybe Paul Diano into Dickinson, um, Bruce Dickinson into, um, I was going to call him Bill Belly then. That's because I can't actually remember what it is. Blaze Bailey, there we go. Sorry, Blaze. Blaze. So yeah, Paul um, Deanna into Dickinson, Dickinson into Bailey. Uh, Blaze Bailey, back into Bruce Dickinson again. I'm so great with names. So you could do any of the conflicts around that. The early days of having three guitarists from when Adrian Smith rejoined the band. And at that point you had, what was it, Yannick Gers Yannick Gers and I know I've got a thousand, not a thousand, let's let's be real here, at least three Maiden fans that are like, give me shit right now on the other side. Dave? Dave! Good old Dave. Yeah, there's early days of having three guitarists, whereas they've only ever had two at one point. And you can look at Bruce Dickinson's battle with throat cancer that happened in more recent years. But the problem I had with having it as Maiden is Maiden kind of, they've had just taken everything in their stride. They've had an issue. They've just overcome it and moved on. And the point that really hammered this home was when I was doing my reading about this is in regards to when Bruce rejoined the band in 1999, bassist Steve Harris admitted that at first he wasn't really into it. Um, but then he thought, well, if the change happens who should we get instead the thing is we know bruce and we know what he's capable of and you think better than ever you know i mean we got on one profession for like 11 years so after i thought about it i didn't really have a problem with it and that was pretty much made and through and through if they have an issue they just sort of look at it face it move on so there's not enough drama for a film if that makes sense and like fair enough there's people who can make mountains out of molehills for films that's fair enough but i don't think uh maiden are the right fit for that so you look at a band like black sabbath they've got plenty of fucking drama about them ozzy osbourne is a walking coke cloud but with that there's too much to cover and the only way i would oh excuse me i'm dying again the only way i'd maybe look at it is maybe chronicling the 13 album cycle but then where, as opposed to having like all the Aussie drug habits and all that sort of thing, which made them so notorious in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's, there's still drama around, but it's, it's more, it's, it's, the word was stuck in my head, it's gone again, but basically it's not as dramatic. So you've got like, the big moment where you're reuniting Ozzy with Tony Iommi and um, Geezer Butler. You've got, but at the same time, you've got the lack of Bill Ward because of this apparent conflict with Sharon Osbourne. You've got what never became their final world tour. You've got enough there. But in recent months, Ozzy has attacked Iommi saying he didn't enjoy working with him in the studio again, which Iommi's like, what the fuck is this all about? Where did this come from? But then Ozzy Osbourne, as I previously mentioned is a walking coke cloud who was never going to get clean but for some reason will live forever and as like a person once me 
I'd love to see a Metallica film that does the early days. I know they had some kind of monster which was more of a straight up documentary. Again, not one that I've seen, but from what I've heard, the documentarian is a fucking moron in it. I'm desperate to see what that's all about. But I'd love to see a film covering the first three Metallica albums. You would look at the early days with Dave Mustaine, which would kind of veer off a little bit into seeing like a rise of Megadeth or see if there was any conflict in the early days between, I guess, sales-wise, there's always been conflict between like Mustaine and particularly Lars, but, you know, if there's any like battle between band supremacy in bookings or that sort of thing between Megadeth and Metallica, um, I'd love to see a more in-depth look at the relationship between James Hetfield and Cliff Burton, the inevitable and tragic bus crash that took the life of Burton, and then what happened afterwards. I've read a lot to say Hetfield really, really took that whole situation terribly, which, you know, understandable. His friend just died. Uh, the introduction of Jason Newstead, the problem with that and yeah you'll go through the first three albums this tragedy of cliff this new basis and jason what inevitably became and justice for all it seems like a happy ending but if we're being real there is no happy ending not not immediately i should say so queen had live aid they were that was the reform get the personal problems out the way live aid happy days for a while sabbath reform Personal problems out the way. 13, tour, happy days for a while. Maiden had the Dickinson overcome cancer, move on as a band, happy days. There's nothing similar for Metallica for a long time, which isn't enough, which is too long to fit into a film. Newstead bass tracks were all but silent for and Justice for All. And there's been so many reports of hazing that lasted up until he left in 2001. The years and years of drug, drink and drug abuse between all members of the band, particularly James. And for me, I don't think they properly recovered until Death Magnetic. Because Load and Reload were very experimental for compared to the previous sound. I think you could even say Black Album was experimental compared to the rest of the band sound. And then with Saint Anger, that was just Saint Anger having, oh, I can't remember the, the bassist's name. The, I want to say Bill Burr, but that's completely off. But yeah, they had the producer in to do bass work for all Saint Anger. I'm going to quickly type that in. And then eventually got in um, Rob Trujillo. Yeah, I don't really feel like, Bob Brock, that was it. I don't really feel like they probably recovered until Death Magnetic. And in a similar sort of vein, Pantera, there's literally no happy ending for Pantera. After Dimebag died, um, Phil and Vinnie Paul constantly at odds. Rex is sort of like caught in the middle, like a kid between two divorcing parents. And then recently with the passing of Vinnie Paul, Phil never got a chance to like make amends that kind of thing so yeah there's no happy ending tragically with pantera other than the fact that well phil's still a bit of an asshole rex is just milling about having fun so you know not good but what about the ones 
who could do it. A very, very negative start to this point. But what about the people who could actually have a Bohemian Rhapsody-style film? Well, uh, going through my musical database that I have, my first point was Alice in Chains. You've got the earliest success as part of the Big Four of Grunge, along with Nirvana, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden. You could look at their early albums like Facelift and Dirt. Their interaction, so as opposed to the Big Four of Thrash, a lot of guys in the Big Four of Grunge were good friends. Um, I think between them, I think Temple of Dog is made up of most of the members of those four. I think the only one that were accepted were... Nirvana? I'm going to guess. Grunge was never my thing. But look at that. Look at the early friendship. Look at them all come out of the Chicago scene. And the sort of like take on the world musically. Having to deal with firing Mike Starr because of his drink and drug problem in the 90s. Bringing in Mike Inez. No, Mike Ines. I don't know why I want to keep calling him Inez. The not disappearance, he just went off the grid for a while, but the disappearance and death of Lane Staley in 2002 and the subsequent breakup, eventually reforming, um, so just like charity shows in 2005, early suggestions of a new co-lead singer like uh, Vin Dombrowski, uh, Scott Weiland, and then eventually setting on William Duval, and then the triumph would be Black is Way to Blue, which is a great album. So that was my first pick. Second pick, I think... I'm kind of doing this in reverse order. So number three would have been Alice in Change. Number two would have been Green Day. I, As much, as much as shit that they get, and as much as I don't like the trilogy albums, I fucking adore Green Day. Um, you've got the early bird, early buzz when they were... What did I say? I wish I could talk English. And the early buzz of being part of the Gilman Street scene... Uh, 39 Smooth, Kaplunk, I think 39 Smooth is a criminally underrated album. It is so good and so raw pop punk. Oh, it's good. Uh, the major label debut on Dookie. So you've got like the early successes there. And then the drug abuse of the 90s, the slump in albums going into Warning. So what was that? Um, Insomniac, Nimrod, Warning. I feel like I'm missing one. Uh, the apparent quote-unquote lost album that allegedly, although all but confirmed, turned into the Network side project, which I really like that album as well. And then from there, it became American Idiot, and now they are back to being one of the biggest bands of this generation. I don't care what anyone says, 21st Century Breakdown is a fucking triumph. Uno Dos Tres are pretty dire, and then Revolution Radio, I also thought was pretty good. But my number one pick, my number one pick when I first started chatting about this with people at work, is Guns and Fucking Roses because Axl Rose is a fucking nutter and I want to know everything about him. Easily focus on the center, uh, on um, Appetite for Destruction. They basically took over the world with that one album. It is easily the greatest hits in an album. Everyone knows at least four songs from that album. So you could start off there and then the massive decline in relationship between 87 and 93 between various members of the band and then the dissolution of notable lineups, i.e. Slash leaving, McKagan leaving, Sorum leaving. I'd love, to, I think 
Chinese democracy, the whirlwind around that could have its own film. I think that would be fucking awesome. But you could go into, what was it, 14 year gap till democracy, find out everything that happened with the band then, and then in the year since, you've got the initial, the early early rumours of a reunion between Axel slash McKagan, confirmed by January 16, and then confirmed that they were headlining Coachella 2016, and then went on tour as a Not In His Lifetime tour. That in itself is a fucking movie. That's a, that's a trilogy of films right there. That is Infinity War, ending one film on a sad, next film which is The Whirlwind, and I imagine Endgame won't have a sequel, but either way, you've got the the happy ending at the end with Coachella and Not In This Lifetime, whatever. But yeah, if I could choose one, it would definitely be Guns N' Roses because, like I said, Axl Rose is a nutter who I honestly think just chews on bricks because he's bored. But yeah, those would be my three definite picks, at least. Um, As in Chains, Green Day, and Guns N' Roses. I'll be very interested to hear if you guys have got anything else to add to them. Um, Much like a casual YouTuber, hit me up on any of my usual links at DesolationPod on pretty much everything these days. Water break into album reviews. So I'm going to start with more on the kind of subject of comebacks, actually. I have discovered a four song split between two bands that remind me massively of mid 2000s, like emo tinged post hardcore. The split is called Graying Into Bloom and it features two of New Zealand's like up-and-coming post-hardcore stalwarts. You've got Ray, which is spelled R-E-I. It's after an anime, which I totally remember. Neon, Gen- Neon Genesis Evangel... That one. Neon Genesis something. That's going to annoy me if I don't ask. Not Neon Exchequer, fuck's sake. Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah, that. That totally known anime, which I actually know is pretty popular, but I'm just retarded. Uh, so you've got Ray, and you've got another band called Chasing South, which aren't named after anything as far as I'm aware, which makes it easier to explain. Both from Auckland. Uh, we'll start with Ray. They were formed in 2015. They are a five-piece. And from what I could find, they've only got one previous release, and that was a single called Knives, released last year. So they are very nubile, very fresh, very green into the music industry. Conversely, Chasing South, and we go for a little bit longer, they formed in 2010. They are a quartet, uh, like I said, also from Auckland, and they've got a middling discography, actually. They've got four singles, a demo, and two EPs, and the most recent EP is called Carry the Weight, and that was released January last year. So like I said, four songs in total, two each. We'll start with the two Ray songs. Uh, I'm kind of mixed with the vocals as a whole. I like the low-end screams, but I'm not too keen on the dissonant-style cleans. I think that's more personal preference, because I know a lot of people pop on that. Um, When I was looking for things to compare it to, I kind of likened them to Thursday quite a bit in uh, the vocal department, because they do have... 
from what I could tell with Thursday, they do have uh, cleans which are a little bit harsh on the ear, but still in tune, if that makes sense. And yeah, kind of had the same sort of feeling with Ray. Uh, the first song, uh, Blossom and Bleeding. I keep saying uh right now, don't I? I just noticed it. I'm sorry. It is very strong, very riffy post-hardcore. Although I've got differences with how they do vocals, that sort of, like I said, dissonant cleans, low-end screams. I do like it when they overlap, and I like it when bands do that in general. I think it adds just that extra punch and extra energy to any band sound. And the song super comes alive in the final quarter. And it feel, it just kind of feels like all the out instruments are trying to battle it out. And they do describe themselves as a math rock influenced experimental emo post-hardcore thing. But the math element really comes into fruition here because you do have all different instruments trying to kind of go on their own way and just trying to do their own thing i guess and it makes for a really fun enter song which leads into my exit smile which is their second song really really stripped back more emo-y kind of ballad vocally it's still not quite my th um quite my thing but like i said i know this sort of vocal style is a massive appeal to people i know it was when i was Fucking now, I keep hitting this fucking microphone. I know it was when I was a kid. Um, I imagine there's still, well, of course there's still a market for it. Bands like Alexis on Fire reforming, Thrice are still doing quite, still doing quite well. The Glacier album from a few, a couple of years ago was very, very popular. So that kind of thing still is hugely possible. Uh, popular, popular, with P's, not S's. Uh, I know it's, they are very new. Like I said, they've only been going for a few years. They've all got one previous actual release, which is just a single. So it feels really cruel to attack the production, but I think a decent mix on My Exit Smile could have made that song sound massive. And it'll be a thing where it could be something that, if they want to keep that style of ballad in like a, ma a major release, I think, production would do really well there and by that i mean like a studio album not necessarily on a major label i i kind of like for them for when they if they do get signed to re-record it with more money behind the production because like i said i do think that song could be fantastic so yeah overall of the two bands i think ray has more in common with that early 2000s post-hardcore scene of like um Hawthorne Heights, Say a Sin, that kind of thing. Uh, moving on to Chasing South. They are still emo-y post-hardcore, but there's a little bit more punk rock in there. Their first song is called Lost On Me. First thing that struck me was the singer kind of has a similar vocal style to Al Barr from Dropkick Murphys. Yeah, Dropkick Murphys. That sort of like low-end... Grunt doesn't feel like the right word, but that's... you kind of get what I mean. Um, and I thought it was quite interesting to hear once I made that similarity and I couldn't get that voice out of my head it was quite cool to hear that kind of voice in with music like this and there's times where it's hard to know who the vocalist is it's listed as Chris Lawson is lead singer, lead singer which is fair but all other members of the band contribute vocals and there's a second vocalist on the verses who he really does sound like he's straining and maybe kind of out of his comfort zone. 
when it comes to the trade-off and vocals you've got chris who's definitely you can tell what parts of chris but yeah the second vocalist is there's a bit later on in the song who does some really old school almost death call like low-end growls and if it's the same guy i would say just stick to the growls personally and it's again hard for me to sit it's Difficult for me to make comparisons when it's completely outside their, the rest of their discography because I have no idea what they sound like usually. But yeah, when, in the verse, it just really sounded like he was really struggling. I'm just going to make weird noises. But yeah, it's just better to stick with. if, Like I said, if it's the same vocalist doing the more strange trade-off in the verses as it is the same guy who's doing the growls in the choruses just stick to what you personally stick to what you're better at and that is the low end stuff the chorus as a whole is great the opening line is kind of a little bit wobbly and i don't know if that's just because um lawson hasn't quite got the control in his voice or what have you but i think outside that opening line there is a lot of strength in his voice and he's a really, really good screamer. And there's a bit, I think, post-chorus where they just... It's kind of like a, a, an emotional bass. And he's just going, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Kind of what people think want me to do. Um, but the build-up for it, and then right at the end, the really old-school growl, I think works really, really well. And that, in turn, leads to the final song of Chasing South and of The Split. It's called Filaments, which... Holy shit, does this song remind me of Zokes? Which is basically Zokes, if you're unaware of them, that is a great band to be compared to. I, that album from a couple of years ago was so missed by everyone and it needed to be the best thing that ever happened. It's really offbeat, crunchy, post-hardcore. Um, I played it alongside, so I played Filaments alongside the song Bad Blood and you can really see similar, similarities between them. Uh, I think this full um, this style of like a full on shout in filaments. I think Lawson really it sounds so much more comfortable like that, where it is a small raw sounding, like I said, shout. I thought that was really really good, and I was also a fan of like the personal breakdown. I just personally, sorry no. I've written it down wrong. No, I haven't. I wasn't a fan of um, the ending breakdown, just to really confuse everyone then. I had to remember the song in my head then, and I remember, yeah. Um, brains, aren't they great? Personally, I would have gone without it. Just kept the off-peat, punchy, post-hardcore, and then just, not a fade-off, because I hate fade-offs in song, but a better, basically just a better way to end it. Just, for me at least. Between the two, I do prefer the Chasing South tracks. It is closer to what I used to listen to on the reg. It reminds me closer of Whereas Ray is like that early to mid 2000s uh, post-hardcore. Chasing South kind of reminds me of the more later end of the 2000s and early part of 2000, the 2010s, the teens, whatever they are. I'm more adverse with that and I'm more aware of that and I prefer to listen to that era um regarding ray it comes from an era of post-hardcore i honestly did miss 
I got interested after bands like Pierce the Veil, Emma Rosa, Scary Kids, Scaring Kids started ruining it. I'll happily say that because I had to listen to some of those bands to try and get a way to, for my comparison bit at the end, find them. And they were awful and they were terrible. And I realise now why the emo scene died. And it makes me very sad. Um, so yeah, I kind of got into it after bands like that ruined it, but not before bands like Thrice and Licks on Fire branched out and were just better. Uh, the whole split is the emo feed reincarnated. And I think it's really good. So I don't know how it is for Chasing South, but reading a lot about Ray, they really want to push this. Apparently, like this phase of post-hardcore completely missed New Zealand. And their battle cry is they want to push it there. And they want to like get this scene more prominent in New Zealand. And fair fucks, all power to them. I think it's a great cause I got going on. Working with bands like Chasing South for releases like this are just imperative. I mean, it's the punk rock way of doing things. If you did want to go check this out, if you were for Ray, I'd compare them to Thursday and from first to last. For Chasing South, I compared them to Pulled Apart by Horses. And honestly, I would compare them as a whole to Zokes, which again, I think Zokes is a great thing to be compared to. Um. But yeah, if you are if you are a fan of that like two thousand post hardcore in just in general, I think you'll really go for this. This was Ray and Chasing South with their split EP called Graying into Bloom. Cool. Moving on to so last week I spoke about in the Som review um, post black metal is in a phase where it is either. You are either very, 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 very good at just the core post-black metal sound. You are doing something different with it. So you're expanding out of the genres, um, not shackles, but characteristics and like standard bearing sound. Or you are going to fade into obscurity. So now I can't look at any post-black metal album the same way. Also, I'm going to take a break from post-black metal because I have listened to a lot of it recently. But either way, I'm going to be looking at Forgotten Paths by Seor. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right because it is a Gaelic word. I've been pronouncing a sore for ages. Like when you soar into the clouds or whatever, McGubbins. But I'm not 100% sure that's how I'm supposed to be saying it. So anyway, it's spelled S-A-O-R. It is the fourth album from the Scottish post-black metal band that has a lot of folk metal into it. And the word Seor, sore sour whatever uh, means free and unconstrained in gaelic which in the grand scheme of things works really well because they're a band who like to talk about nature and just with the general vibe of the folk metal excuse me influences in the music i think that's a very smart labeling of the band it is headed by a gentleman called andy marshall whom has a lot of one-man projects going if i'm honest his other fling at the moment is called Fuath, which I probably haven't pronounced that right at all. And from memory, Seor comes from, like the band came from the ending of his previous project called Erseid. Um, and I remember reading about it. The reason why he called that off and rebranded as Seor is because 
with Ersaid, or whatever, how you pronounce it, Ersaid, there's an accent on the A, which a lot of people kept getting wrong, and it really frustrated him, and so he just turned it into Sayo, which is fair enough. And now people like me can't pronounce it properly, which is also fine. Probably not, he's probably going mad somewhere, if you could ever hear this. Pause for effect. And to reread my notes. So yeah, I, in describing the band, I feel like I have kind of given away. They are Sayo's band who break out of the conventional post-black metal realm. And yeah, they incorporate loads more folk music into their sound. There's a lot of, there's some great violin work, which I will touch on momentarily. Um, there's some great female vocals in there. There's a bagpipe, because of course there's a fucking bagpipe. It's a Scottish extreme folk metal album. Of course there's going to be bagpipes. But let's start at the beginning, because that makes sense. Forgotten Path, the um, title track. Is the open song of the album, and as expected, it opens with the usual barrage of tremolo picking and blast beats. Before the session violinist Lambert Segura, he is a fucking a don in this album. He does such a great work, and he does add that sense of delicacy in amongst all the chaos of um, the guitars and drums. There is also I'm I am certain I'm I know. I feel like I know more than the average person about mu uh, music. That's not a brag, but in order to do a, a podcast like this, I feel like I should know a, a bit more going in. But I am fairly certain there's a pan flute playing alongside the violins. The pan flute also does a great job, but I can't see anyone listed down as a pan flutist. The closest thing I've got is um, Gloria Lyre, which I'll get to, whom I'll talk about more in a bit. It's just listed down as everything in one of the tracks. And you've got Carlos Vivas, who is the drummer for the album. There's nothing here to say about Pan Flutist. I'm very, very frustrated about that because the Pan Flutist does a great job as well as Segura on the violin. Anyway, tangent away. Marshall's voice comes in about three and a half minutes into the album. And it's kind of more a bark, I'll describe it. Which I've never really heard that kind of vocal style in black metal before. Um... Usually, I hear it more in, like, cross-punk or death metal or that kind of thing. Personally, I'm not even a fan of it then. But again, that is not an attack on the sound of the album or Andy Marsh himself. That is just literally down to personal preference. I did, however, like, he's got, like, a, a whispery trade-off part somewhat through the song. I really enjoyed that. I think it does add um, like an eeriness to the album, which is, I probably use that word a bit too much, but you know, I really enjoyed that part. Uh, after the quietest section in the middle part of the song, they have uh, guest vocalist Nage. I again, prop why do I keep finding albums or people who just have difficult names? Nage, I'm going to go with Nage from Alcest. He comes in and does Nagey things. He's got a bit more of a traditional scream, which Again, more towards my kind of thing, but it's a great job to close out the album. And then it moves into Monard. Again, hope I pronounced that right. Um, and the opening three minutes of Monard is quite possibly the best section of the entire album. Um, it opens for about like a minute 30 of just beautiful, soft, idyllic... Um, 
like folk music, uh, a lot of piano, a lot of guitars, uh, not guitar, sorry, violins. Um, so it's probably not folk music, but you know, I'm just doing what's in front of me. And then it just swells in this huge musical battle between Segura's violin and Marshall's guitar work. To which his guitar work in this song before the vocals kick in is fucking great. And for better or for worse, there are times where you kind of forget that it's a separate electric guitar. And I kind of thought it was just part of the general string arrangement. Because he can match... Not only can he match the violin note for note, but he can complement it so well. And there's just a lot more... I don't want to say shred, because I think that has different connotations. But it does have a lot more... It feels more of a, of a traditional guitar solo playing alongside his violin. And I think it, it does work really, really well. And it sounds incredible. Um, and the guitar work for the rest of the song is... Still good. I'm not like saying this is the one part of the time where he's ever actually got a guitar, but I don't know why I noticed it more here than anyone else, but I just felt like his guitar work here was a bit more beyond just your standard tremella picking. Uh, Bron? Mm. Third song on the album. Uh, it features vocals from the aforementioned Scottish folk singer Sophie Rogers and bagpipes courtesy of Kevin Murphy from Chalice of Suffering. There will never be a more necro Scottish sentence that I will ever say in my entire life. But here we are. Rogers' voice are just incredible here. They are phenomenal. So pretty and delicate. And they accompany the pan flute. Again, that damn pan flute so damn well. Um, and it really... I, amongst the entire album, of course, there's like violins, pan flutes, OG, folk instrumentation throughout the entire album. Here, combined with her vocals, you really, really feel those influences more than any other time. I don't know what it is. I think it might just be her vocal style, but her... I want to try and find out what her chorus lyric is. Um, yeah, so her... like, I guess her chorus, which she like, repeats over and over, is The friends are all departed. The hearthstone is black and cold. And sterility grows a nettle on the place be um, beloved of old. Now, this is one of the times where I have no idea what's going on, but those lyrics are fucking great. And the way she sings them are just so damn... It's just nice. Which I know... Five years of being... Oh, wait, no. Basically, you're an English student for the entire like primary school and secondary school. So, 11 years of being told, don't describe things as nice, because that's a lazy word. I just... It is such... It's not warming, but it's not cold, if that's right. It's not attacking, but it's not comforting. I don't know how to describe it. It's just really, really pleasant, really, really nice execution of those lyrics. So yeah, I think she does a great job. I can vaguely remember all my many English teachers just being very, very cross with me right now. So, welcome. Look at me now, Mom. And then it ends with Exile, which is a very, very short, in the grand scheme of things, song. Uh, it's a quaint, emotional little number, devoid of martial typical warfare. Like I said, um, the key songwriter and performer on this album is a lady by the name of Gloria Lyre. I don't know how she's managed to get her way into completely writing a 
song from Scratch 4, Sail, but here we are. A uh, lovely little way to end the album. It's an instrumental, classically folk album um, song to round out the album. It's a sombre entered album. I quite like it. The album in itself, as a whole, has definitely ticked the different boxes. Well out the way of typical post-black metal. Um, there's a part where I was thinking where I might have been the wrong audience for this album. And I, I don't know how it could have been because I listen to this kind of music a lot. I just found myself enjoying the folk parts more. And I don't know whether that's because I listened to a, um, a lot of folk, folk metal when I was growing up or just what have you. But for whatever reason, it didn't click. This album didn't click to me in the same way it's clicked for everyone else. There is a lot of love for this album online. Lots of eights and nines out of tens and um, fours out of fives. So I think it might just be me that it hasn't just clicked to as much. It might just be unfamiliarity with folk music used with post-black metal or whatever it is there's a lot of good moments in this album like the opening to Monard uh, the uh, Rogers' um, choruses on Bron. for me there's moments but not just but just not enough for a full song or for a full album again this whole project this whole podcast is just personal opinion the whole point of music is that you make your own decisions if you are, I tried to do a bit of digging to find out who to compare this to. I can find comparisons and overlap with bands like Sojourner, which a band I'm not too familiar with, but from what I've heard, like I said, a lot of overlap with them and Seo. And Panopticon, which is one of the weirder album band names that I've ever heard of. But yeah, Sojourner, Panopticon, if you are aware of them, you're probably aware of Seo, but if not, definitely give us a go. It is Forgotten Past by Seor, folk metal inspired post-black metal. Cool. On to this week's main event. And an album that I have... I can't even say I've been looking forward to because... I I kept hearing the buzz and the hype around the album. But for whatever reason I just never went back to find the build up to it if that makes sense um it's called the goat it's by a band called puppy it is their debut album they are from london and they're an alt metal band they which is just not enough to describe them um there was all that hype it was an incredible hype that came after their volume 2 ep that came out in 2017 again always on my radar and always one of the things to like buy and listen to just never did this album covers damn near every known rock genre that's commonly heard which is great because it means you've got such an eclectic mix of music to listen to but for me i'm a self-confessed genre nazi everything needs to fit into a category it's been a fucking nightmare to categorize this oh my god i can't even so they use a lot in general they do use a lot of um vocal layering and layered vocal harmonies similarly to prestamico uh, differences are Prestamico do change around who's going to be the lead lyricist for a song whereas Puppy it is all about uh, Jock Norton and the other two guys whose names escape me I'm going to quickly find them to do him justice but yeah the other two guys sort of back up Jock if that makes sense what have we got there 
annoyingly, I did have them written down right in front of me, and for whatever reason, the line hasn't synced across, because fuck you, right? I'll find out as we go along. Um, but yeah, each song, like I said, has a uniqueness about them, so you can't really feel like you're getting the same song more than once. And, oh, why would you do that to me? Computers, am I right, lads? So it's Jock Norton, bolstered by Billy Howard and Will Michaels. Sorry, lads, I forgot your names. To be fair, I didn't remember Jocks. It's just written down. I'm just a shit. So anyways, open up with Black Hole. It has got massive helmet vibes. Helmet the... I feel like quite underrated 90s alt-metal grungy band. And there's a deep, dirty bass backing fairly trad, um, trad metal sounding guitars that sound just great in parallel with each other. Uh, Jock's vocals have like an eerie, use that word too much, ghostness about them. And combined with the backing vocals from uh, Billy and Will, the choruses sound fucking huge. And it is the first of every song having a massive singable chorus to go with them. Um, to the point where it bridges gaps to maybe pop levels of choruses. I think I'll go touch on a bit more later, but all these songs are designed for a live environment. They will be fucking great. Uh, the final chorus where the drums go like double time, it just gets you so hyped for the rest of the album. And it just, the rest of the album fucking excels at it. So here we are. Uh, next song, Vengeance. Continues the helmet vibes, uh, more huge sounds of choruses that built for a live environment. Riffs for days. This is such a riff-heavy album in general. The riff, particularly on this song after the first chorus, is just Italian finger. No, French fingers. General cooking country finger kissing, just and like Italian hand pinching to say how good it is. That's the level we're at now. I'm actually making the hand movements as we speak, even though there's no one here to see them. And I feel like every song, well, for like every song, I could easily just go on and on and on and on a huge chorus because on any given day, a different song can be stuck in your head. And it got me thinking, in terms of how good these songs are and how good the choruses are for each song, it's so fucking unfair. It's so unfair. It's so unfair because Poppy have made an album completely full of memorable and catchy choruses when you've got bands who massively struggle to get more than one on an album and poppy make it seem so easy that you think oh every band could do it and then every band comes out and then a lot of them can't do this and they can't write that iconic chorus and they can't write that hooky earworm sort of music and it is unfair how Poppy can do it seemingly so easy where you get so many bands who struggle and then you just lose out on so many other good bands because this one's so good. Don't know if that made sense, but you, you want more bands and artists to be this level of good when you've got bands like Bullet For My Valentine around who aren't that anymore. And you just think, God fucking damn, dude. And then you think people like... Gene Simmons say rock music is dead and then you're just you listen to this and think man Gene you're a fucking idiot but there we go that's just Gene Simmons being a fucking idiot because he is indeed a fucking idiot 
influences uh, for this album just come from everywhere, and that's genre, time zones, everything. I previously mentioned Helmet, and So I Burn has an old school uh, Judas Priest riffage about it throughout it, which is that's kind of a sentence. Um, conversely, though, which I thought was quite interesting, Demons, which is the album ender, has more of a modern firepower era riff nestled away, which I think it's more of a trademark to Judas Priest, the fact that they are still influencing bands, and it's 2019, and their album, from their album last year. It's fucking uncanny. Uh, the rest of the Demons song um, has a lot of Iron Maiden-esque riff in there as well. Nightwalker gives me a lot of ghost vibes. I was going to say it's the best song that Ghost never wrote, but Sarice and Death Macabre exist. So they are on par with those two songs. I probably pronounced Sarice wrong. Sirius? Sarice? I'm going to go with Sarice. Say how it's spelled. Uh, Entombed is the lead song. I know it was on volume two, and that's a song that a lot of people are looking forward to. Um, and also it's like the one of the lead songs that's played live as well. It sounds like if Macedon blew up in the 90s. Uh, particularly chorus and break before the solo and then the actual solo itself. It's a lot of, from memory, it's a lot of um, guitar harmonies, a lot of dual harmonies, both vocally and uh, musically. And it just sounds fucking huge and fucking heavy, but not extreme metal heavy. And it's just, God, this album's good. Uh, I'm not an expert famous last words I'm not an expert but on I Feel an Evil I kind of got a lot of Zach Wild um, 90s Ozzy Osbourne feeling from it particularly um, the post-chorus riff which is just bathed in pinch harmonics which are, are pretty much fuel Zach Wild at this point and the last song I'll isolate is uh, Bathe in Blood it's just got loads of blast beats in it. And this is, again, this is not an extreme metal album at all. This is not an extreme metal song. It's just not. But yeah, the bulk of the song is um, blast beats, and they sound so fucking good. And blast beats are always fun, but so uncommon when they're used outside of extreme music. The only example I can think of off the top of my head was Saints and Sinners in By the Defiled. Which I know, I'd say Defiled are a lot heavier than Puppy, easily. They are like a industrial groove, metalcore kind of band who are severely missed. But yeah, they've got um, massive blast beats in the opening verse. I went looking for blast beats in Holy Hell by Architects, and I just couldn't find an example, but I know they're nestled away in there somewhere. But yeah, otherwise, Bathe and Blood, apart from those blast beats, it's quite spacey grunge music, kind of, sure. And overall, yeah, if you can't tell already, I fucking love this album. Even down to the album art, which, I'll be honest, I think a lot of it's down to the fact that I've got a huge thing for pagan visuals at the moment. My Instagram is just fucking full of... The Instagram Explore bit is just full of this shit right now. But it's so simple. It's so cool. It's so just... Damn. Like Ron Simmons, damn. That's how good it is. Um, and I don't even think this is going to be the best album. I think they can only get absolutely so much fucking better. 
Um, even though this is like at the moment album of the year for me, and a lot of people say it's easily the f- best guitar album of the year. Excuse me. Um, as I was looking around for what other people thought, um, Heavy Bloggers Heavy made a really interesting point that said there's not an, there's too much separation between genres. Excuse me again. Um, so they compared it to Zealand Arda. Zealand Arda compared um, combined so many different genres. In fact, it felt like a new genre. I kind of get where they're coming from with this album. There's a lot of although there is a cloud of alt metal grunge over it. There's still a lot of different influences like the ghost influences, the Judas Priest and Maiden, the potential Zach Wild sort of thing. Um, but you can single out each and every genre between each and every song. If that makes sense, I think the next step is to try and incorporate more of those influences into a song. So as opposed to saying that song is just a grunge song, it can be this and that and this and that, and it's just going to really ruin my head and all my genre Nazism that I spoke about before. I will compare these two. So if you are a fan of Helmet, I think you're really good for this. I think... See, I never really got on properly with Ghost. I've heard so many people talk about them and I just can't get into them the same way everyone else can. I feel like how everyone talks about Ghost is how I feel about Puppy. And musically, there are similarities there, so I can put put Ghost out there as well. So if you like Ghost, I think you should go for Puppy. And also, the way they sort of blend genres together, I think it's worth checking out if you are a fan of Hawkeyes, which are a Leeds-based multi-genre metal band who, again, criminally underrated, so it would be surprised if you've heard of them but not of Puppy, or you haven't listened to Puppy without, you know. Um, but yeah, if you are a fan of Hawkeyes, a fan of Ghost, or a fan of Helmet, I think you should definitely go for Puppy. If you're just a fan of guitar music in general, no matter what you usually um, listen to, from Queens of the Stone Age to Arctic Monkeys to fucking Lamb of God, I think Puppy is going to be your next favourite band. Poisonly. So that ramble is going to do it for me today. I can't even say what's coming up next week because... Oh, I think I can... No. Because I don't quite know what's on the agenda for next week yet. The only album I can think of is an album by a band called Bukengasa. You can gase. That's why I don't want to put my money on my mouth yet. That's not right. Oh well. Uh, that's why I don't want to say anything yet because I don't know how to pronounce things yet because I'm shit. Um, but otherwise, stay tuned for next week because there will be a new episode or, or new addition to Open Mic. Uh, it is going. I'm going to say it now because I haven't got anything else planned. It is going to be as voted for by yourselves. Come clarity by in flames. It's to do with. I had a choice of either going down the Wash Your Sleeps route or the Inflames route, considering they both got new albums due on the 1st of March. After a lonely vote, it is going to Inflames. And I thought I was going to go for the most well-known or the most popular Inflames album. Turns out I've got probably one of the most divisive, so I'm going to have a fucking great time with that. Um, but that's all coming up next week. Thank you very much for listening. And if you want to get in touch, usual affairs at Desolation Pod on everything. But until such time, I will see you then. Goodbye.